And welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm Ben Plumley. Um, we have an incredible lineup for you in this episode uh, as we do these special episodes from the International AIDS Society's 2019 AIDS Conference. As ever, I'm joined by my co-host, Yvette Raphael, Thanks, Executive ben. Director of APHA. Yes. It's great to see you. Uh, we're also joined, and this is quite an emotional moment for me, by Defident Namo from the Pangea Zimbabwe AIDS Trust. And uh, PZAT is the uh, successor of the Pangea Global AIDS uh, Foundation that I ran. So, Def, it's really great to have you here. Thanks for having me. And I'm really privileged to have one of my heroes in the uh, AIDS response, Dr. Andrew Ball, who is the uh, director of the WHO Department of HIV, Viral Hepatitis and STIs. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks, Ben, for inviting me. Yeah, it's terrific. So, Yvette, as my father likes to quote from Shakespeare, what news from the Rialto? What's going on today? Oh, Ben, uh, as South Africa, while being here, we are faced with a, almost a challenge where one of the uh, big NGOs that I believe in and that got me to start speaking about my own HIV status is entangled and embroiled in a sexual harassment cover-up uh, issue and, uh, and case back home in South Africa. And we... As, as a person, I obviously was caught up between the organization that I looked up to and also what I believe advocacy is around. Mm -hmm. And uh, most definitely very sad coming coming news coming from home, but also just to remember that TAC, the Treatment Ex Action Campaign, was nominated then for a, a Peace Award, you know, for uh, way back then, a Nobel Peace Prize. and. Now we are here. It was one of the organizations that challenged UNAIDS with regards to the sexual harassment case for Michelle Sidibe in the forefront. And now we are here. And I have many friends and comrades at Treatment Action Campaign that I look up to. But I have to do what I have to do that we as community have to be able to call each other out and ensure that we stay on the right track and do not do what we say we, we uh, some of the things that we don't agree with publicly when it happens at home. So yeah, I'm a little bit all over the place emotionally, but I'm at home and here as well. So it's, it's where we are. Yeah, it is. And I, I think if there's one thing that this conference, perhaps more than any other, uh, has really taught me is that, that, that the science and the um, and human rights are, are, are really like a hand in glove, like strands of DNA together. Um, and, and I think we we have to really think about not only what we do, but how we do it, um, which I, I, I guess is the, the issue that's been underpinning our discussions over the last few days, how to implement the science, how to make sure communities do what's best for them. Yeah, I mean, communities have to set the agenda themselves and, and have to be at the helm and leading those. And sometimes hard, uh, hard um you know, decisions have to be made. But uh, it brings me to my dear friend and comrade, uh, Dr. Namo, definitely Namo from uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, what is your big takeaway from this conference, the IAS? As somebody who works in science and is a researcher herself, and now we're here, 2019 in Mexico. For me, it's uh, prevention, prevention, and prevention. And the sad thing is, 
We have a product that has been shown to be efficacious. We have oral prep. We know it works when you take it. But what's coming out of this conference is the rise in STI cases when you talk about PrEP. For me, that's disheartening. It's like we have a win and now we have a low. Mm. And I'm not too sure whether to celebrate uh, us getting a new prevention option in the prevention basket when we have a rise in STI. So it's like a cage 22 for me and I'm still trying to understand what this means. And most definitely the, the conference is showing some of the successes. I was attending the, the HIV testing and, and, and um, PrEP conversation or session this morning, and it was showing just how effective PrEP is. And we should not despair, but I think we should also look forward to how we merge these two and teach uh, our communities around healthy sexuality, healthy sex life, and how to make HIV AIDS part of their lives. I mean, Def, that's a really interesting comment that you make about STIs. And Andrew, I, I, I don't know uh, how much WHO can say about the data, but I've been really intrigued that in many settings around the world, you know, PrEP hasn't been associated with a large number of STIs, that you, you basically engage people into a continuum of prevention services. Um, is that something that, that perhaps WHO has seen, or do you share DEF's concern? I mean, certainly um, WHO actually has had a session, um, uh, a satellite session on Sunday, specifically looking at the issue of PrEP and STIs. And we actually put out a document um, to actually look at some of the key issues. We had some very interesting data that um, was presented, including from Australia, um, showing you know, extraordinary high rates of a broad range of STIs in um, those communities, those um, individuals that, um, that take PrEP. Now, our view is very much that um, PrEP provides an opportunity. As, as you said, it is an incredibly effective tool, a prevention tool, where, um, I mean, we can't ignore, um, you know, if there is something effective out there to actually put it into use. But in doing so, we know that we have to use it in a way in which it's going to have an impact and, um, and actually be integrated with a much broader HIV response. So the view that we have is that um, what we need to do is to link PrEP services very much with STI services. And we see a win-win um, a, a situation. Um, PrEP uptake has been very low in most countries. It's been limited to a few um, populations that have really embraced it. And, um, and so to actually expand the use of PrEP, particularly for those who are at greatest risk, um, we need every possible avenue to promote PrEP and to enable for it to be um, prescribed and for communities to be educated. At the same time, um, it does provide an opportunity, PrEP in itself, of attracting um, um, populations, individuals, who might be at high risk of not only HIV, but of STIs. It can encourage them to come to services, to be tested, and then linked, very, um, linked to, 
to, to treatment very quickly. So the whole idea of bringing together PrEP and STI services, I think is going to be a remarkable addition to the way in which we can expand STI services to bring people in, particularly those who are asymptomatic, to um, offer testing, to diagnose early, to treat, um, and then um, really interrupt um, the transmission that that is occurring. I loved that you said test because that, that's been one of the things I've been banging on this week about the importance of, of testing really as an entry point uh, for prevention and treatment. And, you know, you almost can't think of PrEP without it being part of a, a, a continuum of, of services. Um, but definite, I, I, how are things going in Zimbabwe? Because you were working on the rollout of PrEP a couple of years ago. How has that played out? So thanks, Ben. And we are still working on rolling out of PrEP. And um, what, what we did is starting 2016, we had our guidelines launched in Zimbabwe around PrEP. And now we're scaling up PrEP. We started off with small demonstration projects, mostly funded through PrEPFAR under DREAMS. But now we, we have a national scale-up program. We have our PrEP implementation plan in place. And we have over 74 facilities that are now delivering PrEP in Zimbabwe, which is a, a huge stride for, for us. So how many people and, are on PrEP, do you think? So we have about 11,800 people on PrEP as of wow. June wow. 2019, and we celebrate the stride. It's, for us, it's huge. Like Now we have uh, uh, 11,800 people on PrEP. And what we are seeing, though, is um, just like um, in other, uh, other countries as well, we are seeing that huge dip in month one and month two. But um, we, are, we are not yet too sure in terms of measurement whether this dip is because people have um, changed their behavior or they found alternatives that work for them. But this is something that we're still trying to monitor and trying to um, understand as a country. But we, 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 we are celebrating the 11,800 people on That's track. a huge it's, achievement. It's amazing for us. Yeah. I mean, it's probably, I, I mean, I, I think of the East Bay in Oakland, uh, California, and, you know, we really struggle. That, that's an incredible number. Yeah, in South Africa, struggling as well, and congratulations to the advocates and the women and the, the issues around getting PrEP in, in Zimbabwe, it, it can only be difficult. And South Africa is, is a little bit uh, ahead of, of time with PrEP, but mm. 14,000 for me is dismal in a country where we have such a huge number of uh, new infections yearly, weekly. We're counting weekly at 1,600 women. Wait, wait, so 14,000 people are on, on PrEP in South Africa? Yes. And nearly 12,000 in Zimbabwe. Yeah, it, 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 it's, a, it, it's a problem. And also to know that globally, for, 450,000 people are on PrEP and the countries where the HIV uh, rates are so high and new infections are so high are doing so dismal with PrEP uptake. And I think our governments need and can do better to ensure that PrEP becomes part of our healthcare system. Andrew, which, are, which countries stand out to you uh, and stand out to the WHO as, as sort of examples of best practice when it comes to comprehensive prevention? Um, I think, um, you know, if we're actually looking at um, PrEP integration, um, you know, we, we, we have the, ex the experience that has just been 
um, described. I think that there are a number of countries such as Australia that um, moved very quickly and has really a very comprehensive program. Um, it, um, it has very much involved communities. The advocacy has been strong. It's been focused in particular populations, particularly men who have sex with men. Um, but um, there are few and far between the, the actual countries that have um, taken it to scale, that um, have gone beyond you know, recommending it, um, putting into place possible um, um, approaches to, to delivering PrEP, but then to actually get the, the uptake um, is, um, it re remains challenging. And it's great to see that we are seeing this experience um, in countries um, where the population is very different to where the early uptake of um, PrEP was being promoted. Um, and um, where, you know, there's always, um, you know, questioning as to, to what extent would it be relevant given um, the broader range of other um, issues, such as just getting enough people on, on, on treatment to, to start with and retaining them on treatment. And, 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 and so, Def, how is treatment being rolled out in Zimbabwe? I mean, you said this conference is prevention, prevention, prevention. But how is the treatment side going? I know that that's something that PISAT has been very, very involved in. Yes, so treatment is also going on well. And uh, Zimbabwe also adopted the test and, uh, and treat. And that is going on well. We do have um, challenges where, uh, in terms of communication. Um, uh, people receiving treatment did not un understand how we had a batch of um, drugs that um, the expiry dates, uh, uh, they had expired. Oh. But um, wh what happened was um, uh, from the Medical Controls Authority of Zimbabwe, they had extended that shelf life, just like any other drug can, uh, can have the shelf life extended. And uh, there was a demonstration a few weeks ago on that and um, the ministry was explaining to um, um, uh, the people who are affected, the people who were part of this uh, demonstration, how this works, how they had extended the shelf life so that people understand. But just like any other country, we do have those challenges, but uh, the treatment is really going on well. Even our treatment cascade, we have about 85 people who are on treatment of those who've been tested. So in terms of coverage, we are doing um, quite well. We could do better, yes, but I think we're on the that's right true track. For, that's true for all of us. But um, just to get the numbers right, how many, how many people are on treatment in Zim? We have about 1.2 uh, uh, 1 million people, so. Oh. Yes. Wow. And how many have we got in South Africa on treatment? Uh, over four, 4 million people. And we have 7.3 million people living with HIV in South Africa. So for us, it's again the halfway mark, but we can do better. We need more people on, uh, on treatment to reach the 1990 goals and to ensure that people do stay and get to a point of being undetectable. Andrew, <laughs> you look back on our, our careers you know, back to the early 2000s, we would never have guessed this, right? Um, not at all. And even looking back, back further to even contemplate that um, treatment was going to be made available in, um, 
in most countries was just a, 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 a dream. Um, to, so it is really a public health, um, I mean, success story. You know, one of the, the greatest that, that keeps on being told as a demonstration of how really what community action um, has led to a very accelerated response. And associated with that, it's not just how treatment has scaled up, it's everything around it. It's addressing aspects of service delivery, the research, you know, from clinical um, basic science to clinical research to social science, addressing human rights issues, disparities in access to services, the way in which services are now being delivered, the thinking around communities and their role in the response. So it's not just about the numbers of people on treatment and the numbers of people that have, have, have been um, saved. It is very much around transforming the whole public health system in a way in which it's going to benefit or is benefiting um, broader public health measures. Um, so it, it's never going to be the same. It's never going to be the same, even though we, we talk about maybe some of the complacency around HIV. Um, we need to remember that it has created a movement where maybe our expectations um, around HIV need to be um, you know, put into the, the context of what has been achieved more broadly and, and those opportunities. Yeah, and, and funny you say that because I always say we need to celebrate our gains. We need to remember where we come from so that we also can have that moment of patting ourselves in the back where Africans and people from the, the SADC region or black and brown people were not trusted or could not be believed to be able to you know, understand time and take treatment and continue and staying on it. And one of the big things I celebrate is the fact that the old people living with HIV in South Africa are the ones who are adhering and the ones that refuse to change the handful of pills that they still get to a one tablet because they say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The deletegravy is there, but why should I then change treatment when it really works for me. So I want to just give a shout out to all of those old guard activists and women and people living with HIV who is pulling and being that beacon of hope for, for the rest of the world and other people living with HIV. You know, so, you mentioned, oh no, sorry, Jeff. Yeah, so for me, just following up on what Yvette is saying, I think what we need to do is take the lessons learned from treatment all the differentiated care models. We've done a lot to invest in differentiated care. And now we know at least what works, what doesn't work in terms of treatment. But for me, it's translating that into prevention. Mm. Because what we want to do is make sure that person who's negative maintains their negative status. Let's make prevention sexy. Just like we say the, uh, those who are on treatment should um, adhere to their treatment so that they become virally suppressed. We're talking about U equals U. Let's translate that to, uh, uh, to prevention so that we, we, we take advantage of the lessons learned in, uh, uh, in treatment. Most definitely. You mentioned differentiated care. And, and Andrew, I know this is something we've been, we've been talking about over the years. It'd be really interesting to see both of your definitions of that. And I, I don't know, Def, if, how would you describe differentiated care? 
So for me, differentiated care is taking services to the people, whichever way, meeting, me, uh, meeting you at your point of need. If you need your drugs at home, let's, t uh, let's bring them to your, uh, to your house. If you want to come to the facility, you should come to the facility. So different models of delivering the same services. But um, for me, the catchphrase is uh, meeting you at a point of need. If you need this service, we'll take it to you. If you want to come to us as a healthcare provider, you come to us. But those different models. Yeah. I mean, Andrew, we, we worked on uh, optimization of treatment for a number of years and, and differentiated care came into that. How do you see uh, from a, a sort of a, a healthcare policy perspective, the role of differentiated care? Honestly, I mean, differentiated care has been a concept um, for, that has been around for a long time. It may be not have, has been defined as such. But I recall, you know, back when I was a clinician, that we would um, organise our services in a way in which those who didn't need specialist care could be treated in the community, could be treated at primary health care level, and that there were very clear um, referral systems that enabled those who were sick and could not be managed close to their home, where they live, that they could be referred very easily um, to the next level of care. So differentiated care is, um, is not a new concept. Maybe it has been um, better defined and it is now um, um, helping us to have a much clearer idea as to how we organise and design our, our health services to actually look at what is the impact that we are achieving through the different services that are being delivered. And we see very clearly that um, those who are stable, are well, um, you know, their um, um, retention in care, their adherence is in is much greater if they are managed at a, at a community primary health care level. But of course, we recognise that those who are sick or where the, 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 the situation, the, the, the management of um, their particular illness is complicated, that we have a way in which we can um, deal with that uh, um, as quickly as possible. So it results in better outcomes, greater impact, and more efficient. Less costly because you are investing in communities rather than in tertiary hospitals. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, in, 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 in a case of South Africa where we, we, we're moving again back to the community health care workers and ensuring this the school health program you know you can ensure and you can identify and start working with young kids and in the school system to make sure their eyes are tested get hiv testing at schools as well as ensuring that when we talk integration how we can use you know lay healthcare workers to uh, give services like contraceptives and routine HIV testing in the, in the households and where the people are. And they don't have to go and look out or wait for an event. One of the things that stresses me is that we, we test people at events. You know, we put up a tent and we call everybody to test. But what about the moment when I feel I want to test? Yeah, no, I think that's, 
that, that is where the future of, of the response is going to be. But coming back to the conference and the data, um, I, I think a real highlight has been the data on dolutegravir in treatment. And um, I've got to say, Andrew, I, I've been really impressed that, you know, last year we had this issue, potential issue of neural tube defects in uh, Botswana. Um, and I've been really fascinated at the way WHO has sort of tracked this and managed to update its guidelines really rapidly. And, you know, WHO came out with revised guidelines, um, you know, this year after the data was presented, showing, you know, the signal is not as strong as we, we thought. How, were, how was WHO able to do this? Well, it wasn't just WHO. It really involved many partners and, um, you know, investments from... Um, uh, um, some of the, the key donors, plus um, the commitment in countries, in countries such as Botswana, in Brazil, to actually um, um, generate the data that is critical for us to make decisions. Now, just to make you aware that when WHO came out with the, the guidelines last year, um, we were in the process of going to the guidelines review committee before the safety signal was announced. We had everything planned with regard to how we were going to present the data and um, the, the key discussions around the, the PICO questions, the recommendations that needed to be addressed. So we were taken by absolute surprise um, when the safety signal um, um, was, um, was announced. Now, clearly, um, that was a wake-up call to us. Um, it demonstrated very clearly that um, how important some um, pharmacovigilance is to actually ensure that we are on, aware of the potential risks of, um, of any treatment that we're providing, particularly when we are um, getting to a stage when we're looking at very large scale, scale up. So it was um, the preparedness that everybody was expecting for dolutegravir to, to um, come on, um, to, to, to be promoted and to be widely scaled up. And when this alert came, came out, and possibly it could have been managed in a better way to, um, so that countries um, could make more informed decisions, that communities could have been involved more in understanding um, what the safety signal meant and what the options are for, for communities and for the governments to understand how it might influence their, influence their policies and their treatment rollout. Um, sure, it could, we, we learned quite a few lessons there as to how we might deal with a similar situation um, again. You know, from this side, it looks like, you know, WHO has been completely on top of this and... Uh, and, and so, you know, huge kudos for you. Um, uh, I, I, I remember scratching my head with you, oh my gosh, maybe 10, 15 years ago about the complexities of the grading system and all the issues that have to be taken into account. Um, it's very interesting because, um, I, again, from the way that you're presenting the data, you're, you're, you're deliberately not letting us fall into this trap of, oh, dolutegravir is the next magic pill. And, and, and there was a comment from our friend David Barr this morning about how we have to avoid imagining that 
dolutegravir is going to end the AIDS epidemic. But I, I have been, I, I've got to say, I've been so impressed on how WHO has, has stayed on top of that. So um, I, I think, you know, kudos to you and your, your, your team. And, and maybe I, I didn't quite finish the story. So yeah. I, I like to tell long stories. <laughs> I like to. Um, so, I mean, it was this, um, the safety signal that really caused a lot of havoc um, early on. But it also re resulted in um, substantial support from NIH to actually um, expand um, the, the studies that were um, providing the, the data that was required um, to, to make a more informed decision because, you know, this was a safety signal. It wasn't clear exactly what the implications were. So it stimulated um, investments in further research to actually look at what the issues are, an opportunity to engage with women living with HIV, um, to engage with communities, with governments, to actually understand what the issues are, um, so that we were very prepared um, to look at what the, you know, the broader range of issues were that we needed to address that possibly wouldn't have been the case if we had just issued the, the guidelines straight off without any of the, 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 the safety signal. It also provided us with an opportunity of un undertaking some modeling um, to actually look at what the implications were with regard to, you know, if we introduce dolutegravir and if there is the risk of a neural tube defect, vis-a-vis -vis if we continued um, with the old regimens, um, um, with the Faverins-based um, regimens. We also had um, more and more data that was coming in from our HIV drug resistance surveillance work. And so within a year, we actually had um, a substantial amount of new data that could really give us much clearer thinking as to what the recommendations should be. We not only had the information with regard to uh, the risk of neural tube defect, and that, 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 uh, that hasn't been fully answered yet. You know, there is ongoing um, um, data to, there, there's ongoing um, um, work to actually um, see to what extent the, the, the risk is there. But with the modeling, it clearly demonstrated that um, by tran um, transitioning to dolutegravir, that there would be more lives saved, that there would be fewer um, transmissions of HIV from mother to, to, to children, and that there would be healthier populations. We also had, um, and we launched at, um, at, at this conference, our latest um, report on HIV drug resistance. Yeah. And shockingly, right. um, you, we are seeing an increasing number. In fact, the majority of countries that, um, um, that we were specifically focusing um, actually reaching um, drug resistance to efavirenz and nevirapine um, exceeding 10%, which is the threshold for us to think, look, yeah. something is going on here. Yeah. Well, I, here's the thing. Andrew Ball stopping me in my tracks and telling me to come back to... He's done that to me regularly over, over my career and <laughs> brilliant job. Um, I mean, Def, I'm really interested in... We're interested in dolutegravir. What does Zimbabwe think about the drug? Is it, is it something that's being rolled out? Is there interest in it? So Zimbabwe is definitely interested. And um, there were 
uh, there was a process that we yeah, we went through. We had consultations with uh, community members to try and understand um, what they would want, what they knew about the uh, gravier, uh, what were their fears, and um, the country then resolved that they would uh, any anyone who tests positive right now would be initiated on dilutagravir. But those who were on treatment before, they would continue on their arrangements simply because of logistical issues. Mm -hmm. There were drug stocks that were there and the country wouldn't just um, throw away those drugs. So uh, people have to continue on those regimens until such a point that those drugs are all used up and then they will then transition to dilutagravir. So... I mean, Yvette, I'd welcome your thoughts on this. I mean, Andrew, what you're basically saying is that at 10%, the NNRTI class, a class of HIV drugs that is widely used, is now really at risk of, of the virus being resistant to. Yes, and, and, and I think it's also over the use. Uh, these drugs, uh, people have been on them for more than 10 years, and obviously this, that's the time when you see resistance. And also what, what's exciting, and, and <laughs> you know, DTG is that superior drug that resistance can happen within a month. And not resistance, what I mean is um, undetectable. You can become undetectable really quick. No, uh, no drug, uh, resistance, as well as the pull burden is much less. So we, we, we're seeing a, a good uh, view of, of, of where we're going with, with, uh, with HIV treatment. We, uh, Dolatagravir won't answer all of the questions, but it will definitely lessen the burden of so many, uh, some that, things that I call the structural issues that makes it so difficult for people to take the drug. If you have to take, and it's such a small drug and so easy to, to take. I, I was jealous that I, I, I will never be able to take DTG, but as, as, as a regimen, but maybe as a salvage drug. And that was what my doctor told me, leave it for you the future because I'm on second line. And it's exciting to know that there is this future with, with something so revolutionary as DTG. And, and, and South Africa is one of the countries that's looking at rolling out DTG and making it much easier for people living with so HIV. It begs the question, you know, where are we going with the AIDS response? You know, where is, what's the state and what happens next? I mean, again, the story hasn't finished with body integrity. <laughs> um, in that, um, yeah, it's a great new addition to the treatment portfolio, but it's not the end. Mm -hmm. We are going to need new antiretroviral drugs um, and even better antiretroviral drugs. Um, and, 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 you know, we're already seeing that there still are challenges. You know, we're seeing evidence of weight gain in some populations of, um, of those using dolutegravir. We have to look at that further. We recognise that the costs are, are high in in many countries and, um, and you know, decisions around access to dolutegravir is being determined for economic um, reasons. So there's still a lot to be done. And let's not just say that um, dolutegravir is, uh, is the solution. It's a, an extremely important, um, you know, addition to um, the, 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 the treatment portfolio, but let's not stop there. 
Yeah, and 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 it uh, takes us to: Are we? Do we have the tools to end the AIDS epidemic? As 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 globally, do we have those tools? Is anyone optimistic about where we are with regards to tools for ending AIDS? That's one of the things that UNAIDS likes to say. By when are we ending AIDS? By the way, 2030 or when? 2030. Yes. Do we have the tools? That's my question to both of you. I think uh, because society is dynamic, people keep changing even the way they behave. We might think we, we have a good grasp and we have a good understanding of how people behave, how they change over time. But because our society is dynamic, things will keep changing and we, uh, it's inevitable we, we are going to have to keep looking for more efficacious drugs, more, uh, come up with more strategies to reduce new infections because people change behavior. Mm. Behavior is modified depending on where you are, your age, uh, your context. So those things are going to keep us searching for newer and better drugs, better strategies to cope with our situation. We, I mean, we haven't been effective in some populations ever since the beginning of the epidemic. I mean, we haven't prevented epidemics among people who use drugs, sex workers, transgender um, people, people in prisons. Um, we haven't been able to get them on treatment and we haven't been able to keep them on treatment. Um, and, you know, so it, it um, you know, the successes um, that we've achieved haven't been, haven't been fair. They haven't been shared across um, all populations, um, is all that communities. What, is, is that therefore what is meant by universal health care? I mean, 2019 is the year of UHC, universal health care. And I know you are heavily involved in it. Um, is it about equity or is it really just about a, um, another political slogan, do you think? Absolutely not. I've been converted to, to, to universal health coverage and I've always been a sceptic as far as, um, you know, new sloganeering. And universal health coverage, the definition is that all people can access the health services and health commodities they need which are of high quality to, have, to achieve impact without experiencing financial hardship. Now, you know, that covers all bases, basically. It, um, it makes us actually think about, well, what does that actually mean? It means that we have to look at how can we deliver services to reach all populations? So you cannot achieve universal health coverage if you achieve 90% coverage, but it's all in the general population yeah. and key populations miss out. So it, it sort of begs the question, do we have the leadership to, to deliver this? You know, Chris Collins said in an opinion article today, Chris Collins from Friends of the Global Fight, you know, we don't need a miracle. What we need is leadership. And um, I'm, you know, really interested in how we, how we do that, particularly given the changes in Zimbabwe over the last year. Do we have the leadership? It's, it's a yes and no, because um, the, the leaders say they are trying as much as possible under their circumstances to do what they can. 
And uh, depending on what lens and whose lens you're looking at it, you might see uh, as though they're not doing enough. Um, there's always room to improve. But um, I think leadership is critical in such uh, circumstances, but um, we would never have perfect leaders, but it's um, working with what we have. <laughs> and the leadership crisis has always been for African leaders, right? But now recently, it's just global. So, Ben, tell me what do you think of the new UK Prime Minister? Oh, that's not fair. That is so not <laughs> but fair. But it's fair. You always ask <laughs> yeah. us about Jacob Zuma and the new guy in Zimbabwe. Yes, so I think it's a good question I, I'm for interested you to hear. Well, I'm not a fan of a wannabe Winston Churchill. I, <laughs> I, and hopefully he will be the shortest prime minister in UK history. But it, it, it does... It, I'm going to get you for that. It, it does beg the question, how... How we work with leadership in what is a populist, essentially a populist era, how we are able to make the science work for people. And 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 Def, starting with you, I would I would really love to know how you and your team has worked with the Ministry of Health and Child Care. And you're describing some numbers that are really extraordinary. So in terms of our Ministry of Health, we've um we started working with our Minister of Health a long time uh, ago, Ben. I think uh, we now have our relationship dates since inception for PZ. And um, we've always had like a great working relationship with them. They're very supportive of the work that we do. And uh, whatever we do uh, in Pangea, we work closely with the Ministry of Health. and. I think that helps us in terms of strengthening the programs that we've run. And uh, we're grateful for that support. Uh, if we go to them with any uh, project, any activity, they are supportive. And um, um, we do have our challenges in our, uh, in our country, but in terms of the Ministry of Health and um, how they're, uh, they're working as a country to um, deliver health services, uh, I would give uh, give them kudos yeah. under the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, I know you can't comment on individual governments, but you know, I look at you, and you've been devoted to evidence based policy making. You know, when you were a clinician, when you came to the WHO, how how does I'm trying to frame this question in a way that you can answer it, but how does WHO work in a populist era? I mean, WHO has worked ever since uh, it was established in extremely difficult um, um, circumstances, whether political, physical, um, um, financial. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is day to day. I mean, what is happening globally is nothing new as far as um, having um, public health challenges. What we can do is, um, and, and we recognise politicians have to make very difficult decisions. They often, particularly in the area of HIV, make highly unpopular decisions and policies um, that are going to be effective. And what we have to do in public health is to make that process as easy as possible so that 
we give them the easy way out of a very difficult situation. And by evidence, the science, um, developing the tools, the interventions, the, the, the drugs, that we can demonstrate is going to have a significant public health impact that is then going to have a broader impact on development, financially or whatever, then we can argue that case. Now, whether they adopt um, you know, our advice is another matter. But we have experience from many countries um, way before um, you know, the, 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 the current global political environment um, has um, become, become so evident. In working in some of the most conservative um, um, countries where they have been able to introduce interventions that um, have not been possible in countries which uh, really have the, some of the most liberal policies. Um, and it's because um, they've often taken on a pragmatic um, approach with regard to you know, what is required to actually address the, the very specific needs of, of their communities. So, you know, this is a challenge for us. And, um, and it is convincing those policymakers that a good public health approach is not only the right approach, but it is going to make their lives so much easier. It's far from easy, but this is um, the strategy that we, we need to, to yeah, adopt. Absolutely. So, so in, in, in wrapping up, what are, your, what are your thoughts for the second half of this conference? Def, what are, you, what are you looking forward to hearing or presenting this week? That, that's, a, <laughs> that's a difficult one. But I think for me, it's um, uh, re-strategizing in how we conduct our research, prevention research, so that it's easy for policymakers to move research into implementation. So we, we sort of shorten the gap uh, from research into implementation. If a product has been shown to be efficacious, there's no reason why we should wait five years for it to be implemented. So for me, it's looking for strategies to shorten that. If it's how we conduct our clinical trials, um, uh, so be it, so that we try and um, relook the way we do the uh, clinical trials to just shorten the gap from research to implementation. For me, it's a big one, and it's got huge implications. And, and Andrew, uh, what is WHO doing for the rest of the week here in Mexico? Okay, well, we've actually done a lot of front-loading for this, um, <laughs> this conference. So our big um, announcements, um, major satellites, um, most of them took place on Sunday, um, last night, um, some of the pre-conferences. Um, but we're ending up with a very nice session tomorrow afternoon that I'd encourage everybody to attend. And that is um, looking at political will. Um, political will, what is required to achieve zero new infections. And, um, and hopefully we will be hearing um, from the presenters um, some of the, um, the approaches that they're taking. And often the solutions aren't globally, they are local. And um, so we are hearing about the experience from New York City, we're hearing about the experience from um, um, 
a range of other cities, and the critical role of some of the, the major donors, such as um, the, the Global Fund. You know, political will and the way in which politics worked 20 years ago when um, um, treatment really started, when um, there was really a generation of a, a major political movement around HIV, the world has changed completely. So it's not a matter of more of the same type of political will, it's a very different type of political will. And that's what people need to realise. Advocacy has to be different, the arguments have to be different, the evidence has to be different, and the people that we target have to be indifferent, different to make HIV still relevant um, in order to achieve the extremely ambitious targets yeah. that we've set. Yeah, absolutely. So Yvette, final words to you. What, what are you expecting from, for the rest of this week? So I'm a, from the country with zero political will when it comes to <laughs> any of the issues, new prevention and research. So, so I'm, 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 I'm excited to attend the conference, maybe it, uh, your session, and maybe it will give me some tools to take back and how to gear up a little bit of Maybe you can talk. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can give a presentation. Yes, you know, on, on, on political world. For me, Ben, the big thing still is the issue around young women and girls. I came here as somebody who had everything in my backpack around uh, how I would change what's happening in South Africa for young women and girls, and just how difficult it is to for us to get to that population. So I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting. I'm still trying to find new answers and, and presentations. Some of them are, are, are yeah, they, they look as if we're trying to do, get to somewhere, but um, um, that's still one of my big things. And I hear there's a new buzzword, male engagement. I want to hear more about this thing, male engagement, because as a feminist, that can be, a total impediment for me to access treatment, access drugs. So I want to see all of these programs and these new slogans that come up when we go to conferences. I'm going to have to go and update my abbreviation list and, you know, all my knowledge around HIV and AIDS when I get home so that I can also sound cool. So the male engagement has reached the science. It's reached, so we need to watch that. And I would like to see how we really make that engagement um, a success without uh, actually further oppressing the woman. Well, Definite Namo, Andrew Ball, and Yvette as always, thank you so much. You are a shot in the arm. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can subscribe to us through the usual ways you find your podcasts and look at our YouTube channel. You can see us um, in person. So thank you all very much and have a great day. Mm -hmm.